It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 296 for June 10th, 2012. This week, virtually perfect how to set up a VM. Zara Designer Pro X, too fast, too much, and too little. In short circuits, LinkedIn cleaned out. And now you can download the Windows 8 release preview. If you need to have more than one operating system on a computer, or you do have more than one, whether you need to or not, you may have a computer set up as a dual boot system so that you can choose which operating system to run when the computer starts. Although boot managers are generally reliable, occasionally they become confused, and that does not bode well for any installed operating system. And because you have to choose at boot time, only one operating system can run at any given time, and switching between them is a chore. There is a better way, but I have to include this one little weasel word right at the beginning. Maybe. If instead of setting up a dual boot computer, you install software that creates one or more virtual machines or VMs, switching from one operating system to another takes just seconds. And two or more operating systems can be running simultaneously. Whether this is a good solution for you depends on whether the performance degradation is acceptable. After all, two operating systems will be sharing the computer's CPU, memory, network connections, and all other components. So, the first thing to consider, if you're thinking of running VMs on your computer, is whether it has enough power to do the job. Possibly, the most critical component is memory. A computer with only 2 to 4 gigabytes of RAM could have trouble, because you'll need to allocate some of the main operating system's RAM to the second operating system. Typically, the primary operating system is considered the host, and the secondary operating system, or systems, the ones that run inside the VMs, are considered guests. Most operating systems need at least one gigabyte of RAM. Exceptions would be DOS or Windows 3.1. So splitting two gigabytes of RAM between a host and a guest would produce less than optimal results for both. Operating systems such as Vista or Windows 7 need far more memory than that just to function reasonably well, so the practical minimum RAM for a computer with VMs installed is probably 4 gigabytes for 32-bit systems and 8 gigabytes for 64-bit systems. Hard disk space is also a consideration. The VM software doesn't require a lot of space on its own, but you will need to allocate space for each virtual machine and that could consume a considerable amount of space. Space for the VMs can usually be on a drive other than the primary drive, if that's more convenient for you. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a couple of screenshots showing virtual machines in operation. VirtualBox running an Ubuntu installation on a Windows computer, for example. Or VirtualBox running Windows 7 on Apple's Mac OS X. The three primary VM applications are Oracle's Virtual Box. Oracle acquired that when it purchased Sun Microsystems. Next is Parallels Eponymous Parallels and VMware's equally eponymous VMware. I selected VirtualBox in part because it's an open source application that's available without charge 
and in part because it supports more host systems than Parallels or VMware. All three VM applications run under most versions of Windows, although VMware doesn't yet claim support for Windows 7. Any VM application that runs under Windows 7 should run under Windows 8, but I haven't tested that. Neither Parallels nor VMware offer support for Solaris or OpenSolaris, and none of them offer support for FreeBSD, although support is being developed for VirtualBox. All three VMware applications offer support for several versions of Linux and some versions of Apple's Mac OS X. You'll see a chart on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows which VM type offers support for which operating system. Once you've installed a VM application, you can create a virtual machine that runs DOS, Windows 3.1, Windows 95 or 98, Windows NT, 2000, XP, and Windows Vista. VirtualBox also provides support for Windows 7 as a guest, along with Windows Server 2003 and 2008. All three VMs support OS 2 and some versions of Linux. VirtualBox adds support for OpenBSD, FreeBSD, Solaris, and OpenSolaris as guests. It's possible that some operating systems I haven't mentioned will run successfully as guest operating systems. In fact, it's likely. But versions that aren't fully supported may run slowly or crash frequently. So it's best to limit installations to those that are officially supported. Although Apple's OS X server operating system is supported as a guest, the restrictions are severe. Attempting to run standard OS X operating systems as guests is expressly prohibited by Apple. So if you try that, well, you're on your own. Each virtual machine system offers various additional capabilities, and on the TechBiter Worldwide website you'll find a chart that shows, for example, whether 64-bit host or guest systems are supported, uh, virtual network cards, disk controllers, USB supports, serial ports, parallel ports, things like that. The installation is really pretty easy for something this complex. The first virtual machine you set up will be a two-part installation, installing the VM application and then installing one or more guest operating systems. Both parts are surprisingly easy despite some misdirection in some of the dialog boxes, at least with VirtualBox. I downloaded the VirtualBox application, 91 megabytes for Windows 7 64-bit systems, and I also downloaded version 12.4 of Ubuntu Linux, 701 megabytes. The installation of VirtualBox is really trivial. You just start the installer, respond to the licensing questions, and specify a location. A few minutes later, that process will be complete. By default, all functions will be installed, and you need most of them. If you don't need Python support, though, you can deselect that option, or if you do need it, install Python. Leave the support settings for USB devices and networking selected. And during the installation, you'll be prompted to allow several device drivers to be installed. Allow all of those. The installer will then offer to start VirtualBox. At that point, you're ready to install a guest operating system. You need the installation files on a DVD, on a CD, on floppies, or as a disk image file. I could have burned the Ubuntu installer to a CD, but VirtualBox includes a function that can mount the ISO file as a disk automatically. So I used that. The initial screen will show no virtual machine, so you need to click New to create one. You'll then be asked to name the machine, and this is the name that's used by humans, not something the computer needs, so give it a name that you'll recognize. 
You then need to specify the operating system and the version. Specify the amount of memory that you want to make available to the guest operating system. And because you'll be creating your first virtual machine at this point, you'll want it to be a startup disk. The disk will actually just be a folder on your primary hard drive. That's actually all any drive is. If you have no other virtual machine software that will need to use the disk you're about to create, use the VDI default disk type. Now, you need to decide whether you want to specify a fixed disk size for the new drive or allow it to be allocated as needed. If you have plenty of space on the drive, specify the size. It'll create a faster virtual machine. But if space is really tight and you don't mind slowness, allow dynamic allocation. Or simply reconsider your decision to install VM software on this computer. You really do need the disk space. If you've selected the option to specify a size, the next step will be to specify that size. Now, Ubuntu will run on a small drive, but I like to give it plenty of room to breathe, so I increased the default from 8 gigabytes to 10 gigabytes. By default, the location of the new drive will be inside your user's account. If you prefer to locate the drive elsewhere, browse to the new location. And then you'll be shown a summary. Be sure to read that summary. Check to make sure that the specified system listed there is the system you intend to install. Then click Create. VirtualBox will create and format the new drive in the existing space on your computer. This process will take a few minutes, and at the conclusion of the process, you'll have a virtual drive that's ready to have an operating system installed. Once the drive's been created, you then need to create the virtual machine. To do that, you'll press the Start button on the Virtual Machine dialog box. Keep in mind that no operating system has yet been installed. You'll see some messages about auto-capturing the keyboard and the mouse. Just accept those. The first-run wizard will ask you to specify where the installation disk is. Now, this is a little confusing. The drop-down list displays drives that contain nothing. But note a file folder at the right. Click that to browse to the location of your ISO file. Once you've done that, just click Next. As the process starts, you may see a message about video settings. This can safely be ignored. Ubuntu is running from the virtual CD, and you'd like to install it. You should install third-party software, and you may want to download updates while installing. If you download the updates now, the installation will take longer, but then again, you won't have to do all that later. The installation process will continue to a very scary part. Two choices. Erase the disk or something else. If you choose something else and then click continue, you can at that point confirm that the installation will be on a disk that's the size of the one you created, but something else isn't what you wanted. Once you allay your fears, click the back button and then choose erase. It's going to erase the disk that was just created in a file folder on your computer. It's not going to erase your entire hard disk, but make sure to read everything very carefully. You'll see one final scary confirmation. Make sure that it's doing what you want it to do, and then click Install Now. You will be asked to specify your location and several other bits of information. Then Ubuntu will be installed. During the process, you'll be asked to create a username and a password for your Ubuntu account. The installation will continue, and depending on the speed of your computer, it could take an hour or more. 
Despite the ease with which virtual machines can be set up, started, and operated, VirtualBox offers a wide range of settings that you can use to change the way things work. The downloadable Oracle VM VirtualBox user manual is a 300-page document, and even though it's very well written and easy to follow, a 300-page document is still a 300-page document, and it's going to take you some time to review, even if you just skim some parts of it. The good news is that for basic use, the manual probably won't even be necessary, at least at the beginning. As you become more familiar with the virtual machines you've set up, you may find some limitations and wonder if there aren't ways to eliminate them. In many cases, these methods exist, and you'll find them either in the user manual or by reviewing the Frequently Asked Questions section of the VirtualBox website, or by participating in some of the forums hosted on Oracle's website. One discussion I found there was long and explained how VirtualBox uses what the writer calls a nasty trick to trap the guest's Ring O activity by assigning it to Ring 1, which is typically not used on x86-architected CPUs. Okay, if you have any idea what I just said, you're going to enjoy the documentation. And if you really want to know what's going on, read Chapter 10. If not, skip it. The bottom line for Oracle's virtual box, well, when one operating system is not enough, this is what you need. Five cats. Virtual box was a surprise easier to install than expected, much easier to use than expected, and you can even run a 64-bit guest operating system under a 32-bit host operating system if the hardware is a 64-bit system. The ability to run multiple operating systems concurrently and to share both directories and the clipboard can be a real time saver. Try setting up a virtual machine the next time you're considering a dual boot operation, and you may never go back. I suspect I won't. For more information, check the VirtualBox website. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Every time the folks at Zara sent me a new copy of their designer program, I wonder how they're able to make a relatively small program do so many tasks, perform them so well and so quickly, and charge so little for it. I said a small program, well, the installer is just 88 megabytes. I'm a little confused about the program's name, though. Designer Pro X, or 10, but its version, 8. I presume that X is 10, but 8 is still 8. And I have to say, if that's all I can find to complain about, this must be a remarkable application. In the world of graphics, two types of images exist. Vector images, created from lines and primitive shapes, and bitmaps, typically photographs. Designers use one program for vectors most of the time, and another for bitmaps, although most programs that handle one type of image can now provide some support for the other, because those types of images need to be combined in many cases. Zara has an interesting history. Many years ago, when Corel Draw was the killer graphics application for PC users, Zara created a small, fast application that worried the folks in Ottawa. Corel entered into a marketing agreement with Zara and borrowed some of its technology to make Corel Draw better. The marketing agreement ended, and Zara was once again on its own. 
In the intervening decade, Corel has stumbled badly as Zara has continued to reveal its prowess when it comes to creating programs that are fast, easy to use, and inexpensive. This is usually a combination that's described with the words, pick any two. Fast and easy, but expensive. Easy and cheap, but slow. Fast and inexpensive, but impossible to use. Well, Zara wins the trifecta, time after time, and so it is with the latest version. After installing Zara Designer Pro, I tried to open a digital negative file, a DNG. The DNG format is essentially an open source file format for raw digital images. Regardless of what your camera's raw format is, it can be converted to DNG. And this is a good choice for the future. Canon and Nikon may modify their proprietary RAW formats, but DNG should be supported for a long time. So I thought it would be interesting to watch Designer Pro try to open a DNG and fail. Well, it was fun, but the failure didn't happen. The file opened, and Zara converted it to the Zara format. The attempt to make Zara fail failed. But could I apply a monochrome effect to the image? Then I selected the image and then picked a light tan color. I could have also just dragged a color swatch over onto the image. And it worked. It's another attempt to make Zara fail. Failed. So we're up against a pretty good opponent here. One that understands not only the complexities of graphics, but also one that understands the need to make an application easy to use. The second part of the trifecta is inexpensive. As usual, Zara offers two versions of the application, one that is designed for professionals and one that will do most of what the average user needs. Zara Designer Pro is priced at $300, and that is the Pro version. The amateur version, Zara Photo and Graphic Designer MX, $90. The professional version includes such extras as all the features and templates of Web Designer MX Premium and Photo and Graphic Designer MX. It has support for PDFX files, Pantone colors, color separations, and multi-core processors. Also, there's enhanced import and export filters. This program is fast. Consider my previous test with the DNG document. It was a 10 megabyte file, but it opened in less than five seconds. And when I applied the color cast to the image, well, the process had completed before I could even start a stopwatch, maybe 100 milliseconds, to apply a color cast to a 10 megabyte file. Zara's 3D extrusion effect is second to none because it's fast, accurate, and full-featured. The presence of 27 bevel or side styles makes that clear, and the ability to view and modify the various light sources within the image adds to the versatility. Change the angle and rotation of an object either by using sliders or just grab the object with a mouse cursor and drag it until the appearance is what you want. I created an example you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website in less than 30 seconds, and that included changing several of the settings. One new feature this time around is the Color Select and Erase tool that allows you to make parts of an image transparent based on the color of that part of the image. Once you've selected specific colors to be adjusted, the Photo Tool Enhance option can enhance the existing color or modify the color of objects. Zara's panorama stitching tool has been improved. You can now use up to eight photos to create a panorama. The previous limit was six. If you have a multi-core computer, you'll notice that processing is faster with the Pro version because it uses the multi-thread capability built into the processor. It's not unusual these days for graphics applications to support plugins that are written for the Adobe Photoshop standard, and Zara does just that. 
So this gives you access to a gigantic number of plugins, both free and paid, that can be used to create striking effects. But Zara Designer Pro comes with more than 40 built-in live effect plugins. One of those is a zoom effect. You'll see an example of it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. As usual, Zara offers two versions, as I mentioned. Photo and Graphic Designer MX 2013 and Designer Pro X. The lower-priced Photo and Graphic Designer MX 2013 omits features that professional designers would need. Well, I've already mentioned the prices, but I think I'll do so again simply because they're so remarkable. Designer Pro, $300. And Photo and Graphic Designer MX 2013, just $90. Upgrades from previous versions are even more reasonable. So the bottom line, five cats, once again Zara hits its target. Zara isn't for everyone. Those who need to maintain compatibility with the Adobe line of products won't be able to take advantage of Zara's extraordinary speed, power, and price. But a lot of people who are involved in design work, either as professionals or amateurs, will find Zara Designer Pro, or the bargain-priced photo and graphic designer MX 2013, will be sufficient to suit their needs. For more information, check out the Zara website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, it seems that LinkedIn has been cleaned out. The social networking service for business people is investigating reports that crackers made off with usernames and hashed passwords belonging to all of the network's nearly 7 million members. Passwords that are hashed aren't directly usable and should be impossible to reverse in a way that reveals the true passwords. Several security experts, though, downloaded a file containing data from the site in Russia that is frequented by computer crackers. And there are reports that some users have found their usernames and passwords posted online. If you are a LinkedIn user, you should change your password immediately. But at least one security expert says the crackers may still have access to the LinkedIn system. If that's the case, you may need to change your password more than once. The passwords at LinkedIn are protected by Secure Hashing Algorithm 1, or SHA-1, it's one of the weaker hashing formats. It is not recommended these days by security experts. Brute force methods are known to be effective against SHA-1. Microsoft released the latest preview version of Windows 8 about a week ago. I've installed it on a 64-bit laptop and on a 32-bit laptop. Progress has continued, and if those who simply reject anything new out of hand don't get in the way, my prediction is that Microsoft will have a winner here. There's still the issue of that missing start menu, but as I've mentioned before, after a day or two you probably won't miss it. The first thing I noticed is that both the installation and all other aspects of the system operation are faster than with the previous consumer preview or the developer preview that came first. That's to be expected because the earlier previews undoubtedly contained a lot of code used for debugging. Even so, Windows 8 was considerably faster than Windows 7 in tasks such as startup and shutdown. 
With the debugging code gone, the difference is even more dramatic. Today's quick look at Windows 8 is one of a series of articles I've written over the past year or so, starting with some of the early pleas for Microsoft to reconsider and restore the Start menu. Well, the company's still going to take a lot of heat for this decision, and the easy decision would have been to keep the Start menu. But the right decision, I've concluded after working with it for a while, is the decision Microsoft made. Neither of the computers I've been using Windows 8 on has a touchscreen. Each has a keyboard and a mouse. To me, Windows 8 is primarily a faster version of Windows 7. Some of the more negatively vocal critics have referred to Windows 8 as reminding them of Windows 3.1.1. And you know what? They might be right. Windows 3.1.1, also known as Windows for Workgroups, was the best and final version of Microsoft's first attempt at a true graphical user interface. It was far superior to previous versions of Windows and had some extensibility that allowed forward-thinking users to envision what Windows 95 would look like. And that might be just what Windows 8 is, the best and final version of this stage of operating system development. Windows 8 is the bridge between notebook and desktop systems and highly portable handheld systems. Desktop systems aren't going to go away anytime soon because some tasks simply need big screens, big processors, big memory, and big desk drives. But portable systems, such as smartphones and tablets, are going to be much more important than they have been to date. And Microsoft wants to play on both sides of the room. So consider some random data points. On the 64-bit machine, Windows 8 release preview didn't activate properly on day one as it did on the 32-bit machine, but activation was automatic the second day. The release preview's version of the Windows Media Player still doesn't play DVDs, and this is by design. It is rumored to have something to do with copyright concerns by Microsoft. The assumption is that the Media Player will work as expected in the final release. And if not, there's always the free VLC media player, which is what I'm using on the Windows 8 machine to judge DVD playback. One irony in my acceptance of the removal of the Start menu is an Android tablet that I've been using for several months. I purchased an add-on keyboard, and the keyboard has a glide pad. In other words, I have a touch-centric computer that has a keyboard and a mouse-like device. I found that switching between the keyboard and the screen or between the mouse and the screen is both easy and, after a day or two, totally natural. For that reason, I'm really looking forward to the clamshell computers that are going to be released when Windows 8 begins shipping. I've also found that I really like the ability to link multiple computers via a Microsoft cloud-based service. For those of us who use more than one monitor, Windows 8 offers some extraordinarily nice new features, specifically the ability to move the taskbar from one screen to the other. And even if you want to extend the display across two screens instead of mimicking displays, each screen can have its own wallpaper. That's a small thing, I know, but I like it. And then there's stability. Good even under the developer preview, improved under the consumer preview, and it seems to be even better in the release preview. Microsoft was once known for releasing buggy operating systems too soon. Need I mention, for example, Windows ME or Windows Vista? Well, Microsoft, from those experiences, seems to have learned a lot. So if Windows 7 is Vista done right, then Windows 8 might be Windows 7 done better. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.